Ayoka, welcome to Loving Questions. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Since it's a Sunday, I want to ask, what's a perfect Sunday for you? It's a Sunday where I sleep in a little bit and I crawl right back into bed with my child. And uh, then I do the New York Times crossword puzzle. And I will stay in bed for two, three hours just doing that. Maybe I will make a phone call to my family. I'll call my dad or I'll call my brothers or something. Uh, maybe I will pick up the book that I'm reading from the night before and I will read, you know, a couple of hundred pages in it. So, yeah, that's kind of a great Sunday for me. Not to get out of bed. <laughs> I can agree with that. Sounds so amazing. I don't think I have had a Sunday like that in so long. Yeah, I keep myself too busy. I think I have gotten into productivity mindset a lot, which I'm now trying to get out of. <laughs> What's your favorite thing to eat? Okay, it has to be a toss-up between alu gobi kisabji and also chocolate chip cookie. Ooh, I think I'll go with alu gobi because I'm kind of hungry right now. <laughs> <laughs> Me too, I'm kind of hungry. <laughs> Are you a planner or a go-with-the-flow kind of person? You know, I think I'm a combination of both, but maybe I'm more towards the planning bit. I think I am very much somebody who does everything with intention. I mean, I can be spontaneous. Like if somebody says, hey, you know, do you have a couple of hours? Let's go for a walk. I'll go for a walk. But if it's something like, hey, let's put on some music and dance our feet off, uh, and I've got something else planned, then I'm definitely going to uh, go with my plan, my original plan. I can relate. <laughs> Who has been the biggest inspiration in your life? Um, I think that my biggest inspiration has probably been a combination, I think, of my mother and father. My mother in the sense that I think she had to be so resourceful when we came to this country and really learn how to modify the lifestyle that she used to have with the new lifestyle that we had, a much more reduced income, uh, you know, navigating all of these new cultural boundaries and so on, and then raising us to be so independent. I love that about her. But then my dad also has tremendous work habits, which I have uh, absorbed. He's like a worker. Like he has always dedicated himself to whatever he thought was important in his life. And now that he's retired, now it's all about injustice. He's always fighting injustice wherever he sees it. So now that's that's his mission in life. But I like that about him. He always has uh, some kind of goal going on. And I uh, I think I've absorbed a lot of that. That's amazing. You had great role models, I think. I did, yeah. What's something that you're most proud of in your life so far? I think the ability to fend for myself financially. The ability to uh, create my own path. I think in none of the fields that I have gone into, whether it's been management, whether it's been uh, in advertising or marketing or now authorship, in none of these fields have I had anybody who is a relative or a friend who has gotten me into that field. I have paved my own way to those places, and I'm very proud of the ability to be able to do that. Is there something that you have had to unlearn over the years? Yes. Um, I think one of the things I've had to unlearn is to not be so hard on myself, but that's still hard. That's still very hard. I am a type A personality in the sense that, you know, I have lots of goals. I have a lot of expectations of myself and I always want to be able to meet them. 
And I think my husband has been very good at sort of helping me reframe my failures, as I used to call them. They're not really failures. Like if I don't come up to the level of expectation that I have for myself, it's really just a path. It's really just a journey that I am going towards that goal. It's not like I failed. It's just that I made an advance in this direction or in that direction. And then maybe finally I will find the right direction to be in for me. But trying to lower my expectations of myself, I think that has been very hard and it's kind of something I've had to teach myself. I don't know if maybe that is part of the whole immigrant thing, you know, as immigrants, we want to do so well. We want to exceed maybe our parents' expectations of us, you know, because they were so they work so hard and we want to work just as hard. And it's very hard for me to unlearn that and to say, you know, this is my life. This is not their life. I'm not living their life for them. I am living my life. Yeah, I think it plays a role for sure. I can talk from my experience. When I came as a student, it was harder for us as international students because they were like, rules: you have to have this GPA or your visa will lapse. So like things like those will probably teach you that you have to be always performing at a high level. You cannot afford to be a mediocre student. Yeah. And so, you know, Daman, when I was in college, you know, a lot of my friends were always out partying. They would be going to parties. They'd be going out. I think I, I really missed out on some of that and I deliberately did not join in because I thought, no, I have a paper due. I can't do that. I have a test to study for. I can't do that. And I know that, you know, sometimes that makes you sort of the, the, you know, the wet rag in the room or, you know, whatever, whatever expression people use, uh, like, oh, you're no fun. And I'm like, well, I may not be any fun, but I'm planning my future. So (laughs) I have to weigh that against whatever fun activity you guys might have planned. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that. I've missed so many of these like fun hangouts because I was either stressed about some paper or something that was coming up and that always took priority for me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we're talking about your expectations and how you don't want to fail. So you have now written a bestseller, which also kind of went viral after Reese's book club picked it up. So what was that experience like for you? Okay, so now this might sound a little strange, but uh, I think that there are other people who can relate to this, and maybe you can relate to this. But I always felt in my life, as I was growing up, that there would come a time when I would do something kind of extraordinary. I just didn't know what it was. I didn't know what shape it would take. I didn't know when it would happen. I kept waiting for it to happen. And I thought I was making it happen all the time. You know, for instance, you know, those big plans that I would always be working towards. You know, am I making it happen now? No, not quite yet. Am I making it happen now? No, not quite yet. I think that when it actually happened, it wasn't the big shock of, oh, I I finally done it. It was like, oh, shoot, I'm here. to think about where where it's going to be anymore it's here it's now and yeah you don't have to wonder what that thing would be you know it yeah have you ever felt like that like you're going to do something really amazing. i do want that feeling but it's very frustrating because you don't know what that is are you taking steps to it 
that goal or are you going in the opposite direction you have no idea because you don't know what the thing is yeah and then the most amazing thing about it is that i knew that was the right time for example when i think about writing this book again i think i could not have done it in my 20s i could not have done it in my 30s or my 40s because this book is a culmination of what i have observed about life relationships, women, our place in society, and also sort of my reactions or my positions on various things about gender equality, uh, about class and caste and social structures. So I don't think that at 20, 30, 40, I had quite developed all of my ideas about those things, but I have now. And uh, for me to put it in a book, in a fictional format, was super rewarding to be able to say, this is really how I feel. And to have gone through that process over the 10 years that it took me to write this book, I think I solidified a lot of my positions a lot more. I was able to articulate them in the book through Lakshmi or through Malik or through one of the other characters and uh, be able to say, this is what I believe in. And speaking of writing, do you write every day? What's your routine like? No, I don't have a routine. I wish I could uh, tell writers that, you know, you must do this so many hours a day at a certain time of the day, but I actually don't have a routine. I think it's one of the things that they told us in my MFA program. You should have a routine. This is like a skill that you need to hone every single day. Well, I write in my head a lot. And so if I'm out gardening or if I am out uh, walking or swimming, I will think about my scenes. I will think about how to advance a scene. I will think about creating a new scene. And as these scenes come to me, I start playing with them in my head primarily. I don't write anything down until I actually have the scene worked out in my head. And one of the things that inspired me to do this, I think this is kind of interesting. I read a wonderful book called The Known World by Edward P. Jones. And I love that book so much. And it was about the slavery in the, you know, right after the Civil War or right before the Civil War in uh, the United States. And it was all about African Americans who owned slaves. And it was such an interesting book. And I really got into it. And then I started researching the author. And I realized that he had done that. He had been writing the story in his head for about 19 years as he took the bus to work every day and then the bus back and he'd be writing this, these stories in his head. Now, at some point after 19 years, he was made redundant. So he lost his job and then he sat down at his computer and he typed it all out and it just came flowing out because he'd been with these characters for 19 years and really understood what they were doing in every scene and why and all of this. And I just thought, what a marvelous way to write. (laughs) That's awesome. And you know, I think I have that book on my shelves. And now I'm going to pick that up. You must pick it up. I think it, it, first of all, the whole concept was so interesting. I didn't know that African Americans owned their own slaves as well. But also, I think his writing is so melodic, so lyrical, and the characters are so well-developed that you develop these, you know, feelings for them, like you don't want them to leave uh, when you turn the last page of the book. And I love books like that, where I just cannot 
possibly, you know, give up these characters. And I start all over again from page one. <laughs> yeah, I, I can relate. I am the same way about reading books. But it's like very sad when the book ends. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And since you don't follow a strict routine, do you have any other ways that you adopt to keep yourself inspired and creative throughout the process? Yeah, I'm always reading, first of all. You know, I read five or six books a month, uh, novels. Uh, I'm not a nonfiction reader unless I'm doing research. If I'm doing research, then yes, I will read that kind of work. But I love fiction. I love to know how other people develop a story, how they go deeper into characters how they develop a plot, and also maybe how they develop a plot with three different characters together or five different characters together. I just find that whole process fascinating. So I learn a lot from reading other fiction. And I also, um, you know, do things like I watch movies or I binge on shows, and I really watch them to figure out how they were edited together. How was the story being told? Through whose viewpoint is it being told? So I do a lot of that kind of thing, and I think that always uh, keeps me engaged with the fictional world and how to tell a story better. What else do I do? Uh, oh, my dad is always sending me TED Talks. <laughs> I find TED Talks very inspirational because there will be a TED Talk about, you know, maybe how to develop a more sustainable society, or there will be a TED Talk on, um, like I was just watching one this morning that dad sent me about the pressure that immigrants feel to be better, you know, in their lives than their parents were. Uh, so, you know, all kinds of things like that give me all kinds of inspiration. And sometimes I'll write a little note to myself, or sometimes I'll write an email to myself. And I'll say, okay, think about this. And then I'll write the concept down. And later, when I'm looking for ideas, I will go through all of those uh, kinds of notes that I wrote to myself and go, oh, maybe I can use that. And now we're on to my favorite question. If you were to be deserted on an island, which three books would you take with you? Oh my gosh, that's so hard. Okay, so um, Jane Eyre is going to be one of them for sure, because I just love that novel. I love that orphan girl who, even though she's very plain and uh, she has no charm to speak of as compared to her stepbrothers and sisters whom she's being raised with, she knows that she is worth something, and I love that about her. And uh, she lives the rest of her life in integrity, so I like that. So I would definitely take that. Um, you know, I, I'm actually going to take my own book, <laughs> an artist. I'm going to take that with me too, because that gives me a lot of inspiration from Lakshmi and just from remembering how my mother was and how she raised me. You know, and also it reminds me of my childhood in India in the 1950s and kind of what that whole environment is like and how colorful and dramatic it is and and how chaotic it is too. So that's another one that I would take. And then I think a third book I would take, and I wonder if I have it here with me, is actually my husband's book. It is called How I Met You. Is it about you, Alka? No, no. It's actually a group of short stories. None of them are okay. about me. But it's, uh, it's short stories from, you know, uh, things that he wrote while he was at a Stanford creative writing program, things that he wrote when he was in Las Vegas, things, stories about Texas from when he lived there. And the reason that I would choose that is because he uh, is the one who inspired me to write. And I just think that there's a story in here called Circle of Stones, which really resonated with me and that it always 
stayed with me and something that I have always aspired to write as well as. <laughs> That's amazing and so sweet. And now we are at our last question. If you were to pick one interesting life experience to share with us today, what would you tell us? Gosh, there's so many. I'm trying to decide which one. But I think maybe the most significant one uh, was the one when I started my own agency. And going to work for myself was a way for me to say, I believe in myself. I believe that I can make it. Even if, you know, my parents are scared that I will no longer have the secure job, you know, they want me to have a wonderful life. And I kept reassuring them, I will have a wonderful life. Don't worry about it. I know how to take care of myself. And if this doesn't work out, I'll figure out something else. But it did work out because I worked hard. I think that what it did was it validated my ability to take care of myself and to grow as a person. Because when you have your own business, you are everything in that business. You are the salesperson. You are the marketing person. You are the person doing the work. You are the person hiring other people and managing them to do the work. You are the accountant. You are the bookkeeper. You are all of those things. And so you really grow, I think, uh, you know, in your skill set. And once you have that skill set, you never lose it. So it's really stood me in good stead as I have become an author. Because frankly, being an author is like having your own business. It is very much like that. It is not just about the creative process. You have done the work. And now you must be in collaboration with your publisher to make sure that other people know about your work. And you are doing as much as they are to uh, make sure that other people learn about the work and talk about it and uh, learn from it. I think that that experience of starting my own business did more for me than I can even, you know, estimate at this time. Thank you so much, Elka, for answering my own questions. And I want to tell you that it's so great to talk to you again. After almost a year, I think, last year we spoke around the time when Hedatus came out. And now the next book is coming out in a few days, I believe, right? June 22nd. Yay! So how has this last year been for you? Well, it's been very busy. Uh, I have done over 430 book clubs now. Oh my God, wow. Uh, <laughs> and that doesn't even include all the podcasts and the interviews and everything else that I've done. I've also been uh, involved in marketing the book in Italy and in France and in Bulgaria and in the Netherlands and in Switzerland. And so that's been really uh, amazing. You know, all of these other countries, Romania, Macedonia, you know, it's just amazing to me that people in all these other countries also want to learn about Lakshmi, the henna artist, and her life. So that's been just fantastic. I, I love talking to people all over the world. That's been really fun. I think it's just been so rewarding to hear from women who say, I get this book. I understand. I am these women that are in the book. I am Lakshmi. I am Parvati. I am... Kanta, I understand what they're going through. And uh, then several women have told me that they would like to change their life as a result of reading the book. That's awesome. That is the most awesome, yeah. When women say that, you know, this inspires me to find something else in my life that I really want to pursue, or it inspires me to stop putting up with the minimum that is being given to me and to go for broke. 
that is really important. I mean, that just fills my heart when somebody says that, you know, a book of fiction can allow them to do that. It's probably similar to how I felt every time I read Jane Eyre and I thought, you know, I, I wasn't the orphan girl, but I definitely was somebody who felt that I was worth something more than what the kids around me thought I was worth. That just comes from being, you know, the brown girl in all the white schoolrooms and having people think somehow that you can't measure up. And I just remember thinking, yes, I can and I will and I'll show you. <laughs> And, you know, even as a brown reader, it feels so great to hear that now the henna artist is going in all these countries and people want to read about our culture and experiences. That's so great to hear. Yeah. And then the other thing that I think they're telling me that's very rewarding is that they're learning things about India that they didn't know. They're learning stories about India and the way different classes and socioeconomic groups function in life. And I think that's really important because we can't just have people know one story about India. It's important for them to know all the different stories about India. And then I think it's important for them to know why Indian people are so resilient, why they work hard. And it's because they've had their country destroyed over and over and over, and they've had to rebuild over and over and over. And now the henna artist is also being made into a TV series, right? Yes. What is that like? How does that feel? Well, you know, it feels really good. And I try to actually keep myself pretty grounded because <laughs> I do know that a lot of Hollywood productions go by the wayside because even the majority of them never get actually produced or filmed. They go so far and then they can't go any further because the players have changed in the decision-making process or there's not enough money to distribute it. Or it could be that, you know, COVID in India is going to be so strong that maybe it won't clear up in time for us to be able to film there. So there's a lot of different things at play that can hamper the production and the filming of something. So I, I try to keep myself grounded and say, you know, it may not ever happen, but if it does, uh, and my husband always says, when it does... <laughs> It'll be so much fun to actually be in India to watch the filming and to watch them make this uh, into something amazing. I really would love to see them make this into that Indian Downton Abbey that they promised me. I think for once, I would like for the world to see India from the perspective of South Asians, not from the perspective of the British or the French or the Portuguese or the yes. Spanish. You know, I really want them to see this from the viewpoint of us, the people who actually live there, live those lives day to day. Yeah, I agree. And I also had a writing related question, which I thought I'd probably bring it up with you because who else to go for? <laughs> so I recently was just realizing that so many of the novels are almost 300 pages long. Yes. Is it something that's like industry mandated or like is it unset rule about how long a novel can be? No, it's not industry mandated, but that does seem to be about where most novels end up, somewhere between three to four hundred pages. You know, it used to be all those years ago that you know novels could go on, you know, Tolstoy could go on for seven hundred pages. You know, it used to be all those years ago that maybe people had time to read because they didn't have all these other distractions. They didn't have iPhones and computers and, you know, movies to go to. But now it seems as if either writers, new writers are only writing as much as 300 to 400 pages, 
or maybe that is what the industry likes us to write, or maybe that's what we keep reading. And so maybe in our minds, psychologically, we just are aiming for the same number of pages that we just read. I don't know. I don't know what that is, but I do know that the industry likes, has gotten used to about three to 400 pages is a sweet spot. Yeah, most of the books these days are in that range. So that's why yeah. I was like, oh, it seems yeah. like very odd. Like everybody's writing the same length. <laughs> right. And anything less than that is considered a novella. So we do see novellas every yeah. now and then, right? And then anything more than that, I think people have a really hard time committing to that. And I just think we have turned into this culture that finds it really hard to commit to something that is going to take us a really long time to finish. <laughs> that is true. Like I, I didn't read it. I listened to Barack Obama's book, A yeah. Promised Land, which was like 700 plus pages. <laughs> oh my God, so long. <laughs> and I know of other friends who, who kind of gave up. They're like, this is too long. <laughs> I don't think I can finish this. <laughs> and, you know, I think that if you've got something to say, I don't know that you need any more pages than that to say it. Do you know what I mean? I'm always trying to trim my pages down, down, down. I'm always cutting, cutting, cutting so that I can get to the essence of what I'm trying to say. I think that a lot of the Dickenses and the Tolstoys and the Poles of this world were writing because they, they were writing a great lengths because there was no editor around to say, <laughs> You know what? You've already made that point three times. You don't need to do it again. Now we have editors who tell us, you know what? You're just repeating yourself. So let's just cut all this stuff out. Do you think like having a goal of like this many pages in any way curbs the creativity of the writer? No, because, um, you know, it's not really a goal you start out with. Really what you start out with is here's my story and I, and here's, here's another chapter. Here's five more scenes that go into this story. Here's five more, five more, five more. I think that when you get to the end of your story, you then look over the whole thing again and you start tightening, tightening, tightening. And then you will start expanding some scenes because they're more important than other scenes that you can cut. And so these are just things you learn as a writer as you go along. You expand, cut, expand, cut, expand, cut. And then finally, you get to a point where you can turn it over to a professional editor. That editor is going to read your entire manuscript and say, oh, you know, I think that we could cut some more here, or it seems like you have forgotten to tell us about this backstory. You need to tell us maybe just a line or two of this backstory would really be helpful, or this character is in here way too much, and they really aren't central to the story, so you need to cut them back. So then we go through another version of expand, cut, expand, cut, and um, then you finally end up with your number of pages. It's really not... You know, nobody says to you, I need for this to be this number of pages. It just seems to be like how, how you end up. <laughs> and I loved reading The Secret Keeper of Jaipur. I read it recently. And oh, you are, oh, I'm so glad that you read it. I haven't been saying much about it because I know the book is not out yet. I, I got an advanced reader copy. So huh. no spoilers for anyone. But there was so much intrigue about Ratha's story in it now that I can't wait for the next book. When is that going to be out? <laughs> so that one will come out probably in 2023. Oh my God, that's so far away. I know, I know. I'm still doing the research for that. And that's why I was in New York because I was uh, doing a research trip. I was talking to master perfumers and I was going to a major fragrance lab to see how the lab is set up, how people work in the lab. 
as assistants because Rada is going to be a um, lab assistant for a master perfumer in Paris. I wish I could have gone to Paris this year to do all of that yeah. research, but because of COVID, you know, travel bans, uh, I wasn't able to go. But uh, I can get a pretty good approximation of what that is like. And I talked to several people who had either worked in Paris in those years in the 1970s or are very familiar with what that process is like. So I have a pretty good idea now of how Rada is working in this industry. And so I can start writing about those parts, you know, those scenes that take place in the lab and also, you know, how she interacts with her master perfumer. So that's been a really fun to do all of that research. And then the next phase of my research is all about adoptions and adoptees. So, you know, I won't say any more than that, but, you know, I've got to figure out how all of the different players involved in that are going to react to it. But, you know, in, uh, I'm sure in The Secret Keeper, you probably thought, hey, this is kind of a, a slightly different story from the henna artist because this has like mystery. It has more like action adventure. And you know what I'm trying to do is I'm, I'm learning how to write even like slightly different genres. I am always interested in character and character building and how people are transformed throughout the narrative. But also I am interested in moving from purely historical fiction to uh, let's see if we can add some layers of thriller in here. A thriller, action adventure, you know, let's be out in the wilderness. What does that feel like up in the Himalayas? What does it feel like to be somebody like me who is illiterate and who is constantly surrounded by literate people? And, um, you know, what does that feel like for her? And then, of course, Malik, who I think is trying to keep peace all the time with everybody that he's with. You know, he is always uh, the placator. And so how much do you placate when you find that the people you're surrounded with are doing bad things? At what point do you start saying, okay, enough is enough. You really need to fix this problem. Yeah. And now that you mention it, I definitely did see elements of like mistrust in the, like from Nimi's point of view. And also like in the entire story, maybe that comes from you trying to make it like a thriller that there was always this, like, can you trust this person or not? Like, I don't know who's <laughs> right and who's wrong in there. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I love that Lakshmi was still such a big part of the story. I knew oh, yeah. that this was going to be about Malik mainly. So I thought maybe Lakshmi would be kind of left behind. But when I saw that she's very much still there, I love that. Yeah. And also in book number three, she will definitely be a big part of that story too. Because, you know, she, Lakshmi has my heart. <laughs> she is a combination of my mom and me. So I can't leave her out of any of these books. <laughs> and yeah, I don't think it'll make sense without her in there. She has to be there in all of these stories. And, you know, Lakshmi also learned something in The Secret Keeper. And I think it's something that I saw my parents learn, and especially my dad. I think he wanted to be so protective of us. He always would say, don't make the same mistakes I made. I want to prevent you from making the same mistakes. And I would always have to say, Dad, you, can, you can't do that. <laughs> you cannot protect us because if you protect us all the time, we don't grow into adulthood. And we need to learn from our own mistakes. And I would have this talk with him over and over again. And I think it's kind of the talk that Malik has with Lakshmi at the end of the yeah. day. Are you also thinking of uh, starting anything else outside of the Henna Arti series? Any other books? Yeah, I have a couple of ideas that I have pulled aside. And, you know, when I have time to think about it, I, I, I don't like to think about too many 
things at once or my mind would just explode. <laughs> so I have some things that I set set aside. And hopefully in 2023, when the third book in the trilogy is put to bed, then I can start thinking about some of these other stories. And they're always going to be about women. So it's always going to be about women finding themselves, going through a journey of some kind. And I think it's always about creative women because I love creativity in people. I'm always drawn to painters and writers, people who do art installations and musicians. I mean, you know, creative people are my jam. Like they're my tribe. <laughs> I really, I love that because in, you know, when you're creative, it's like you live in this whole other world or many worlds in your head all the time. And it just makes you a far more interesting person, I think, because you keep developing that portion of yourself that's always in imagination. I agree 100%. <laughs> so you have a permanent reader in me for all your books. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and also remember how um, you guys were really into the, the cocktail? Yeah. In the Maharani cocktail. So we included the Maharani cocktail in the secret keeper. Yeah, I saw that. And, uh, because people like that with that cocktail so much. And so my uh, older brother just recently sent me a new cocktail, which is going to go into third book. It sounds yummy. It has pineapple juice Ooh. in it. So, what yeah. is it called? You know, I don't know if he's named it. Because uh, the other one, the name was also amazing, like the Maharani cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for this new one, I bet we're going to have to call it something. I bet I'm going to have to name it maybe something with a scent. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, like the rose water cocktail or, you know, something, something, something that has that, that exudes, um, you know, a sensory sort of feeling, uh, something that we can smell. Mm. Yeah, we'll do that. <laughs> Thank you, Alka, for being a guest on my podcast. It was so great talking to you. I wish you best of luck. Although I think you won't need it. It's a great book and it's going to do great. I'm pretty sure. But still, best of luck with your new book. And listeners, do check out Elka Joshi on Instagram and find her books wherever books are being sold. Yeah, and also you can always find me at alkajoshi.com. <laughs> and next week, I'll meet you again with a new guest. All right, thanks. Bye. Thank you for listening to our conversation today. Hope you enjoyed getting to know our guest as much as I did. You can also watch a video version of this conversation on 11 Questions YouTube channel. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you are listening. And if you like this episode, please leave a 5-star rating on Apple Podcasts. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at 11QuestionsPod for more videos and updates. And I'll be back next week with a new guest. Bye!